I'm really bold up about the future, and I think that over the next 10 years, we're going to see some amazing things. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? Mm, wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. It's a hat kind of day. It is a hat kind of day. It's swampy outside. It's, swampy. it's a bit muggy. My drop-off look for uh, school is, what did you call my raincoat the other day? A kicky. <laughs> a kicky rink. <laughs> a kicky slicker. A kicky slicker. Well, but who, what is anyone's drop-off look? Everybody's just going back home in their pajamas. So why does Not it matter? True. Not true. Not true? By the way, it's October. So we're however many months into this. Yes, um, but my drop-off look has not really changed because I always work from home. But my, you know, baseball hat and my like kicky, kicky slicker, kicky slicker. There are some parents that drop off who look downright uh, ready for I don't know, like really, sports. yeah, like they're. I mean, one woman the other day was wearing literally like a leather cape. What? What is going? On? There's no room for leather capes anymore. In I was the world. like, where is she going? She, is she just, you think they're dressing up for Zoom or is she actually going someplace? She was, she was going somewhere. She was on Some woman, way. if she wasn't going somewhere, I don't know what the hell she was doing. Wow. She was wearing like thigh high boots. Like she looked like she was about to go slay in court, like as a litigation. Okay. I don't know. That could happen. She was, that's what that outfit said to me. That was like a state of mind outfit. Like <laughs> it wasn't like, oh, what do I want to wear today? It was like, what state of mind do I need to be in? There's a fair argument to be made for that because I'm wearing a hideous hoodie and, you know, I don't know that it's doing much for my state of mind. Well, they say dress for the, the, the job that you want. So right. what kind of job do you think we want right now? Right now, it appears that I want to be a phys ed teacher with poor vision. <laughs> it appears that I want to be a homeless yoga instructor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, okay. Speaking of cool jobs. Yeah, speaking of cool jobs. We Charles, yeah, huh? Charles. Charles Corstein has a very cool job. He's the CEO and president of Lesser Evil Snacks, greatest paleo puff snack of all time, in my humble opinion. It's some damn good popcorn, I'll tell you that much. The popcorn is amazing. The puffs are delicious. And his story is really cool. I just, I really enjoyed talking to him. Yeah, it's a nice, he's, he's just a cool guy because he was just, he had this amazing mentality that was like, Failure is not an option. And like sometimes when you, yeah, it really works. Um, but he, we got downright businessy on this one. So it's a, it's a good sort of backstory on, you know, every, every overnight success is really like 10 years in the making. So. Totally. There was a lot of, there was a lot of uphill climb, but also I think the way he's balanced, I mean, lesser evil and like the Buddha bowl, you know, the Buddha on the front of the packaging, like that's not an accident. That's like, he's really found a way to balance an incredible dedication to like spirituality and his meditation practice into his very, very focused business life that has been, you know, kind of filled with peaks and valleys, as my friend Zoe likes to say. Peaks and valleys. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, he's he's a good example of somebody who brings his, his whole self. He puts his whole self in to the work. Uh, anyway, um, so have a listen. Enjoy. Enjoy some puffs or popcorn while you while you have a listen. Agreed. I'm gonna enjoy some of that myself. All right. We love giving you ad-free episodes, but you're going to have to listen to this one real quick. Because this episode is brought to you by us. Yes, our brand new brand, Earth and Star, is taking your daily habits like cold brew and matcha and elevating them with adaptogens to give you some ridiculously healthy benefits. Benefits such as cognitive function, calm, stamina, and a huge boost to your immune system, which I think we can agree we all need right now. Our super convenient, ready-to-drink lattes are 100% certified organic and plant-based made with, what else? Rothy oat milk. Is there any other kind of oat milk today? I don't think so. No packets or tubs or clumpy, weird powder that no matter how much you try to mix it, it never seems to dissolve. Just a delicious little can of magic. We've got all the flavors. We've got cold brew coffee, matcha, turmeric, cacao, which is basically adult chocolate milk. And we are adding 2000 milligrams, that is no small dose, of functional mushroom extracts like lion's mane and chaga to basically upgrade your everyday habit into a kick-ass functional latte. Kick-ass. Kick-ass. Available at earthandstar.com. Take 15% off with the code HTW at checkout. Earth and Star Mushroom Lattes. Amazing taste. Healthy as sh. Um, okay, well, officially welcome, Charles. Oh, thank you for having me. You know, I'm president of Lesser Evil Snacks. I would argue, probably my favorite snack food of all time. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I Are think you so. a popcorn fan? Paleo Puffs. Paleo Puffs. Have you tried the uh, egg white curls? I have. Yeah. I like them, but I don't like them as much as the paleo puffs. Those are my favorite. They're just the salted egg white curls. Mm. And then we just, uh, the veggie steaks, you, you, they're, they're, they're interesting. They're, I think that people are going to be surprised because there's so many vegetables in them that they actually taste good. Veggie sticks? Yeah. We just launched, we're just launching them at Whole Foods right now. Oh, interesting. I have to check. Yeah. That. Like with real vegetables? Oh my God. What a concept. Yeah, so we kind of took the grain-free cassava base and we added, you know, all these different organic vegetables to them. And we, we coat them with, with coconut oil. Actually, I think it's olive oil. I should take that back. And they actually taste pretty good. The green ones are a little bitter, but they're, they're really good. Um. And is the play for more kids and like vegetable folks to get involved or is it more just kind of serving the audience that already loves you? I think it's serving the audience that, that already loves you. I think that we've, that we've been surprised the kids have liked them. Um, you know, just because regular veggie sticks are really like potato sticks. I mean, they taste really good. And um, it, was, it was like... Are kids going to be okay with this? And they actually have been pretty good. I think the ranch ones really go well for kids. The salted ones that taste a little more like vegetables, so it's it's a bit more of a stretch. But it's I, the kids have liked it. But yeah, it definitely was. We we kind of saw the success of paleo puffs, and then we wanted to add protein, so we saw, thought that certified humane 
you know, clean egg whites would be awesome. So we could have a serving of eggs in, in a paleo pot. And then, okay, well, what's the next step? Let's do something that's vegan that, you know, that um, brings us, you know, kind of as, as, much, as many vegetables to the table as possible. Um, and it's actually turned out to be pretty good. Um, yes. It, remember those, uh, remember in the canister, those like salty potato Lay's sticks, like the just really thin. Yeah, oh, um, and they were tiny, like hickory sticks. They were tiny. Tiny, yeah. Yeah. I used to eat them all the time in high school. Yeah, they were the best. They were uh, the best. Yeah. Wow, we've come a long way. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, well, can, can we, because we're going to get into all this good stuff, but can we start from the from the very beginning and how mm. you have come a, such a long way and your kind of origin story? What were you doing before you became um, the genius behind Lesser Evils? Yeah, so I was, um, I was a finance guy. I, I, don't, I didn't study for it in undergrad. I was a history major. Um, I ended up getting a job right out of college working for a bank in Chicago. Are you from Chicago? No, I'm I'm originally from Toronto. Oh, Toronto. It was a Canadian bank that was based in Chicago. Anyway, so I was worked in fixed income, trading government, being as an assistant basically on a government bond desk. And um, they basically shut the office down in Chicago, moved it to New York. Anyways, they let, ended up letting go of almost everybody. And I guess because I was super cheap and super young that they took me to New York with them. And, you know, because there weren't a lot of people left, you know, I got a chance to, to do some stuff and, and plug and play where they needed me. And I actually ended up sticking. So I, 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 I was in finance from, from like 23 to close to 40. It was a, it was a wild time. I mean, I went through, you know, the whole September 11th thing. I went through the, the, the financial crisis like there's a book I read called Liar's Poker and it was, it was as wild as I thought it was going to be, but it, it definitely took a toll on, on my physical health after a while, you know, cause it was, I was living in the city. I was a single guy for most of it. And, you know, I was up all night. I was probably entertaining customers too much. Um, it was, it was certainly the lifestyle. And then when I was getting close to 40, I was feeling a little fried out. I was definitely suffering from some stress you know, I thought I could, you know, was having some small panic attacks and I was like, okay, this is, this has been too long. I've been doing this. There's a reason why it's a, you know, kind of, it's a young man's game. So I, I think the first thing I brought in, you know, I started meditating just to kind of get a, you know, my hands around what was happening to me. And then I became a vegetarian. I started watching, you know, you know, how much sleep I was getting, how much... Was this, I mean, was all of that behavior shift, was that prompted by anything or did that just kind of come from your own... Like, yeah, it was probably because I just was having problems living in my own skin, you know? But I mean, did you, like, did somebody say, oh, you should try meditation? Because it's not, I mean, this is like relatively recent in terms of like a widely accepted, you know, kind of everybody does it, finance and, you know, it doesn't matter what what area you're in, like meditation and a clean diet can be great for everybody. And it, that's not really, it doesn't feel like that was the cultural conversation maybe at that time. Yeah, I think I was probably on the earlier end of it. And I probably started getting into it in my late 30s. So I'm, you know, more than 10 years ago. So it wasn't like they had, you know, 16 apps for that. Right. You know? <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know why, how I got into it. I guess I was always I believed in God. I was somewhat of a spiritual person and maybe that was the angle because I was looking for that angle. I, you know, 
I don't know how it how it landed in my. I think I started. I think the first time, yeah, I remember I went to a, a Buddhist retreat at Kripalu, and that was I was probably in my mid thirties, and that was the first time I'd really tasted meditation in a. And then, what what did your banker friends like think when you said I'm going to this retreat? And I don't you know, think I told Zero yeah, clean little secret. Yeah, it was my little secret. Yeah, I mean, it, and it didn't scream out to me right away. It wasn't like I was a changed person. I continued to, you know, do all the shit that I was doing. But at least I knew that that was a mechanism that was out there that I could try. You know, I did feel, you know, I felt pretty good after, you know, three days of, of that. Um, so when shit started getting a little more ugly, I, you know, that was something that I said, okay, I've, I've seen that. I've you know, it's in my toolkit potentially in a very immature way, but maybe it's something that I can expand on a little bit. You know, out came Insight Timer and whenever I felt, you know, kind of not myself, I would sneak outside or sneak into a conference room or whatever and just try to come back to the breath. It was just that simple, you know, because it was like there were times where like, shit, I got to get out of here and I can't get out of here. What what am I going to do? And so it was like, okay, well, I got to find some things that are going to bring me back. And there were just, you know, there were little things, you know, and that, that, that worked well for me. Mm-hmm. And did you share, you didn't share this with any of your, your, your friends who are also stressing out? You didn't say, Hey, there's this thing that I'm doing. That's like really you know, helpful. It was a pretty macho world. Like it was like one yeah. of those things you don't really, that kind of stuff is viewed as weakness. You know, you know, it was, it was more like what kind of risk you're taking and I'm, you know, what kind of risk you were taking at home and what your PL was and that you were invincible. You know, secretly, it was like I wasn't as invisible as I thought I was, you know? Right. Secretly, you're like gasping for breath. And, uh, <laughs> they can't your sweating like this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's not really sustainable. Yeah. But I do think it takes a certain, there is a certain, I mean, just like you said, a super macho, there's definitely a stigma around admitting that you need that type of help and that you're kind of participating in self-care, which again, was not a thing when you were doing it. Uh, it wasn't something we talked about so freely. So I don't know. I think that's interesting that it was, you know, just sort of innately within you. And even if you weren't going to share it with people, it was still something that you found yourself coming back to. It's amazing that, you know, as you get older and you're willing to admit your vulnerabilities a lot more because, you know, the ego, it doesn't play as big a role in your life. It's amazing how many people go through the same stuff. Like you you come out and start talking about it. Like there isn't many, there aren't many people that don't go, yes, I've struggled with that. I'm so glad you're talking about it. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, it's a full on, let's get to know each other. It's almost like an ice break. But the vulnerability thing is huge. Again, another kind of like buzzy concept in the last couple of years, I think large partly due to Brene Brown and her work in that area. But um, especially men, I think, uh, it's really hard to, it's really hard to just kind of get there. And, yeah. you know, to your point, like once you do, you see such incredible results and it, I don't know, it just feels like freeing, right. To be able to just kind of say it out loud and like, <laughs> you didn't get struck by lightning and you didn't get ostracized by your community. So. Yeah. You're going to be all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So then enter Royal Tenenbaum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't. So the whole lesser evil thing, I don't. Shit, I it it, it kind of came at me gradually. It was I was working, um, and I, I met this this guy whose father, whose friend's father owned Lesser Evil. It would been started by Gene Hackman and Jim Cramer. They had spent a ton of money on it. Oh, really? 
what year did they start it? End of 2004. Okay. And Dean Hackman was just kind of like, hey, <laughs> I need a project. I don't know. I think Jean Hackman's wife, Betsy, was really into the Atkins diet. She was, um, they had this great idea of this maltitol popcorn, very similar to like what's going on right now, keto diet, you know, Mm -hmm. so, you know, kind of low sugar concept, you know, know, kind of reduce the carbs. Anyways, maltitol back then was, was a bit of a diuretic. I think it still is, but I think they'd probably do a better job of masking it. So, you know, I think they got, I, I don't know all the stories, but I hear there were stories of, of people like eating this popcorn and, and complaining about how fast they had to use the restrooms after they used it. <laughs> it was, days. Do you remember those magic Doritos? <laughs> yeah, there was a Dorito. It was, it was like, oh, o- was O-lean. it lace? Yeah, oh, no, they lace. put them in Doritos. They put sure. them in Doritos? Oh, yeah. The lace potato chips. Yeah, Lay's and Pringles, Boleyn. Yes, your stomach would like cramp up. Yeah, it was like... Oh, God. Yeah, so they spent a lot of money on that. And I think that come four years later or five years later, you know, Gene was probably like, I've done seeing this. I'm not putting any more money in this thing, you know? Can you share how, how much he was invested into that business and how it was performing at that time? You know, I would be doing him a disservice because I would just be purely speculating on that. But I would okay. guess it was in the, you know, multi-millions of dollars. You yeah. Know, five, you know, somewhere between five and 20 or something would be my, my guess. It's probably a pretty big range, but they were doing, you know, the big boost at Expo you know, with the, with the, you know, the things hanging down, you know, I think you've got to have a lot of 20 by 20 boots and yeah. those were probably back then were probably at least $20,000. You know, they were doing everything right, but they just didn't nail it on the product, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so how did you, um, how did you find your way to actually taking that plunge? Cause it's not a small pivot. Yeah, well, so I was telling you a little bit before, I was kind of getting into food at the time. And um, so, they, you know, the, the name Les Revo was pretty intriguing. I was like, this is super interesting. And I, at first, I, I don't know if I liked it, the name Les Revo, but it was, it was definitely something that got my attention. But the dad, just, the, the dad and his son worked on it. And they just, you know, I think they, he wanted to go back to school. Um, and maybe I was just stupid enough to take a look at this thing, you know. And so, sure enough, I said, "Okay, I'll give this a try." I was still working at the time, and at the time, I had just finished doing my executive MBA at Cornell, and I had a classmate who was a really smart guy. He was an engineer by background, and he was itching to do something different than finance. So he was like, "Sign me up! I'm I'm into this." So within, I think I, I bought it in November. By March, I think I. I I committed to quitting too, and we decided to to start produce making snacks. Now the funny thing is, what we bought was was you know, was I mean, it, there were some positive things in that you know they had spent a lot of money on the branding. They'd done some you know some solid research into you know um, what the brand meant and what it could mean. That basically that they could take foods that were potentially evil and make them less evil by making them better, which was a kind of a cool concept. So they had these concepts like we can make mac and cheese better, we can do make chips better, we can do everything's evil, everything that is evil can be made less evil, which is which is was there was a lot of white space there. Um, 
but they had really gone down market in terms of channel. And I knew nothing about channel. You know, I didn't know what Christmas tree, Christmas tree shop was or what TJ Maxx and Walmart. And, you know, some of these, you know, I got to be careful what I say here, but, you know, some of these, our customers are more into repeat business, let's say, and some of them are more, you know, take a cool product, see how it does, but cycle things in and out. So the business was a little more transitory and had gotten more so. So when we, when, when I took it over, it was, you know, it was, it needed some fixes. So when we looked at the margin structure, you know, which a finance guy does a little bit, we realized that there really was, the company was in, in a good place in terms of making money in the future. So it's pretty comical. I had gone out and told everyone, you know, on Wall Street how much I was that now that I was getting into food, I couldn't be stopped. And um, that, that, that was pretty funny. <laughs> and so I was, uh, I had stake my ego on a little bit. So I, when I realized that I was going to make a run of it in its current form, I realized I needed to make a pretty drastic change to the business model. So Andrew and I decided that we were going to go and, and spend some of our savings on buying some production equipment. And we were going to open up a factory and start making our own stuff. When you acquired it, or when you sort of took it over, was it currently, were they making their own product or was it co-packed? It was co-packed. Oh, it was. okay. So and you said, screw that. I want to be like totally hands-on. So not only did, was it, was it losing money? Well, I wouldn't say it was losing money. It wasn't making money, but the co-packers found out that there was a material change in ownership and said, okay, we're going to raise your toiling fees Right. 30%. So it was kind of like, oh, wow. Now we're really in, you know, kind of in a pickle. So the margin, I'm just curious because it was just like an interesting time. But what, mm-hmm. when you said that the margin wasn't great and there wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily going to get better, was that due to it being outsourced or was it due to the actual product line and, and, and how it was built? Um, I think, you know, you, when you have a co-packer, you're looking at probably you know, a different margin situation anyways from make when you make it. So let's say you're given 20 or 25 points to your co-packer and you're not necessarily producing it, you know, all that efficiently because you're, you know, kind of have a product that's not scaling properly. So they're hitting you with minimums that are, you know, if you're only producing a half truck load worth of, you know, worth of product, you're not getting two truck load worth, worth of product pricing, right? So it's, it was pretty sp- it, it was pretty small quantities that we were making. Um, and then we had three PLs. We had a, they were just at the end of the day, I mean, I don't, I don't want to speculate on what, what our profit margins were, but our probably gross margins were probably under 30 points, maybe under 20, I, I would guess. Yeah. Um, something Not like great. That. Yeah. So production facility. I mean, it's just like you keep diving in deeper. You're like, I know nothing about the food category. I know nothing about snacks. I'm going to buy this company. It's outsourced. Not only am I going to do that, I'm going to actually like take production into my own hands and figure that out too. So, how did you do that? So, the first piece of the first equipment we bought was from Creators, and I took a loan out from a bank that I worked from, TV Bank, which is pretty funny. They were willing to lend me some money, <laughs> uh, and we put it into a facility here in Danbury. We looked all over the place. We looked in Westchester. We looked at Norwalk, and the cheapest place to set up a factory was in Danbury, Connecticut. Huh. Um, so we we bought we rented a little five thousand square foot facility, it was an old Pepperidge Farm staging area that had bread in it or whatever. So 
It probably took us two or three months to set up. It, none, of, none of the machinery was all that complicated. We didn't need to put new power into the facility or anything, but it was pretty funny. We just didn't, we didn't have any, any production staff or anything. So at first it was like, oh, look, we're setting up this equipment. This is great. No, so I, I remember when we first started, you know, make our first hires, sometimes like I would bring my wife and my kids into the factory. We'd be packing boxes ourselves on our, on our first on our first production runs just because we didn't even we, we didn't even have demand for anything we were producing. It was really kind of silly in retrospect that we actually did this. Um, but the funny thing was was that it allowed us to kind of step outside of ourselves and start dreaming up new products. And I think the first thing we did out of that facility was a line of popcorn called Chia Pop. And it was an organic popcorn line that we we, had, we our first product line was when we first got into Less Revo was a line called Chia Crisp. It was a pop chip made with chia, and it was a black bean pop chip. And it was right around the days of Mama Chia. You know, chia was was the hot thing. So we took some of this milled chia and we put it on popcorn, and it didn't taste so bad. And but the cool thing was it was organic popcorn, and um, so we showed it to some people. We showed it to Whole Foods. We showed it to Wegmans. We showed it to some other people, and. Some people thought it was pretty cool and they actually they ended up taking it. So boom, we now we've got some people who will actually take a product that we're actually manufacturing ourselves. So that's when we started to build out and hire a few people to run that production line. But it was pretty funny, like the, those first few months when we were just getting up and running. But sure enough, if, they, if you build it, they will come. And that, that certainly proved to be the case in this, in this incident. So then the Chia, obviously that didn't stick around for too long because you no longer have the... Yeah. Within six months, I realized we were a one-trick pony and we needed to do something else. But the cool thing about that was, was that it was our first segue into popcorn and it was our first segue into organics. And at the time, popcorn was hot and there was no other organic popcorn out there mm-hmm. other than store, stores, private label brands. God, and it's still hot. Like, what is our sudden obsession with popcorn? I mean, it's just... Back then, it was really hot. Myself included. Yeah, it's like, there's so good. Keeps going. Anyway, go ahead. So, uh, yeah. So, yes. uh, I don't even know where I'm going to go with this, but... um, So, we realized that, you know, chips wasn't for, you know, nothing. You know, the terms on popcorn were just so much more significant than anything else we were doing. AKA those Chia Crisps. You know, so we... You know, we had, you know, turns that were, you know, let's say 15 compared to turns on our other snacks that were five. So we were like, okay, let's mobilize the ships. We're going full, full, full. So when you say just for, just for people who don't totally understand that, like turns, you mean like how quickly it's actually being. How quickly something turns on a shelf in a particular store. So how many times does that product sell in one week in, in the store? And I would say average turns at a grocery store are probably, you know, three to five. Um, in For this sa- category. In this category. But average turns in, in let's say, a nat- in the natural category could be, you know, 10 to 12 or something like that in some of these bigger stores. But we certainly saw that we were indexing a lot higher in popcorn. Um, yeah. So. Uh-huh. The key was to get out of the chia thing. So what were we going to do instead of making chia pop? And come back, right back, we, we talked about Krupalu, but we, you know, this time I was at a nutrition retreat and I was doing this John Bagnula nutrition retreat and he, he, we were talking about good fats. And he was 
he was all about organic coconut oil, extra virgin coconut oil. What year is this? This is 2013, probably. Because the opinion on coconut oil seems to change like month to month, depending on the expert you ask. So it kind of drives me nuts. Um, So, okay. This guy was really big into it. Okay. Um, And... I was like, shit, I could probably, I, I could probably, me air popped our popcorn. And what we would do is we'd warm up the oil and then we drizzle the oil on after the, the popcorn was, was made. So I was like, okay, well, we can warm up coconut oil and put it on popcorn. Let's, you know, this isn't crazy. And, and um, he thought it was a great idea. So got back, we bought some coconut oil. We, you know, we warmed it up and we put it on there. And luckily I was, pretty into Himalayan salt at the time. So I'm like, oh, we'll use Himalayan salt too. And then the whole Buddha thing was, you know, came from, I've told the story before, where there was a Buddha bowl station at Kripalu where, you know, you fill up the bowl and you only put nutritious stuff in there. I'm like, oh, I got this idea. And I think I I got the same idea at the same retreat. Like, oh, Buddha bowl, it's a perfect name for this thing. Right. So I, we, we dreamed up you know, this laughing Buddha that we were going to, it was a laughing monk, Chinese monk that we put on the bag. And uh, sure enough, we showed it to some people. You know, I think we, I can't remember who we launched it with, but it really caught fire in the independent, uh, you know, natural food world. Mm-hmm. Um, some people were really into the coconut oil. And that's yeah. really, yeah. Well, between the ingredients and the the branding and that just concept at that time, 2013, like that was really, that was the moment for all of those things to kind of, yeah. to the extent that, I mean, I remember, and I think you told me when we, when we met you know, a year ago that, that uh, the naming became really an issue, right? Because everybody thought that it was called bootable popcorn. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, the company was called Lesser Evil, but you know, I, at the time I was an expert at making packaging too. <laughs> I'm just joking, but <laughs> I used to make the packaging myself. So I was like, oh, we'll put Buddha Bowl here. We'll put Less Revil up here on the top left-hand corner. We'll call it Himalayan Pink. We'll call it Himalayan Sweet. So yeah. I just like, it was like patchwork, <laughs> putting <laughs> shit all over the package. But I did write, we hired this great guy. His name is Luke Bot, And he came up with this really cool-looking Buddha. And the one thing that I did do right was I stuck that laughing monk right on the center of the package and that caught people's attention. Yeah. Branding, everything else is terrible, but <laughs> we did something right. No, it's good. I mean, sometimes it's, it, it, it's, you know, it's when you don't know what you're doing that helps you break through the sort of the, you know, the standard design kind of um, approach. So yeah. at that point, did you have, um, I mean, did you bring in other investors or did you have to raise money or you guys were just totally self-funding it? Totally self-funding it. Okay. Um, I think, you know, think about my first investors, you know, one was like a Cornell classmate, my dad, <laughs> you know, the, the usual, you know, but it was, it was primarily me. I was at that time. I'm, you know, I'm telling my wife, this is a great idea, but I'm burning through all the money that I've saved, you know, over the last 15 years and I'm burning through it real fast. Cause one thing, you know, as being in the natural food world that, you know, you can be parted from your money pretty quickly in this, you know, in this world, I mean, yeah. rotting and all the other things that all the UNFI packages, you know, it, it was super expensive. I'm, I consider myself very thankful that I, still exist and that I didn't make any huge mistake 
as I could have. And I've seen so many people, you know, make mistakes, especially in the first few years. Mm-hmm. And have you since taken on capital? Sorry, I, I have to talk about this because no, we're so, no, no, no. We're so this, in it at the moment. So uh, ask me any yeah. questions you think that your, you know, your subscribers would be interested in. I'll no, it's more just what we're interested no, in. This is all just for our own self. It's like, we're, we're raising money right now. Anyway, so it's just, it's, it's an interesting... So, yes, so... That we could talk about that because I, you know, I think that that's really was a big learning curve for me because I could have made some really big mistakes when I started looking for capital. Because the first private equity firms that I did talk to were looking for concessions that I'm so happy that I didn't make, you know. Um, so I, I luckily over the over you know, I would say three years of wanting to raise money, I probably finally found the right person. And it was kind of close to my breaking point. It was almost like I was putting it out there and, you know, someone had pity on me and we're like, okay, we've pushed this guy too far. Maybe we should give him some, some, you know, something good. And these, these Canadian, these, this Canadian investment firm, really nice guys came, came to me kind of when I was throwing my hands up in the air and said, you know, we believe in you. Um, and they invested. I obviously gave them a pretty good. They weren't Mickey Mouse investors. I had to give them a pretty good, you know, valuation. But they didn't include any kind of liquidity preference in the in the deal, which was my don't go. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's turned out to be a really magnificent partnership. If you like, I I can tell you who they are if you're interested. Yeah, we would love that. Um, and then. So just to be clear, because this is going to make us feel so much better about ourselves right now. Sure. <laughs> the number. You were, you were, I mean, you know, is it safe to say that you were performing as a business and you guys were doing well and you had some traction and, and you were seeking, you know, capital uh, for however you said three years? Were you kind of pounding your head against the wall for three years? Before? I want to say, when do we... T- I'm this is all going back a few years and, you know, I'm approaching 50, so I don't remember everything perfectly clearly, but I think, lion's mane, I think, I think 2016 was probably, or end of 2015, we were probably said, okay, we could use some, some capital because we were competing against Skinny Pop and Angie's, both who were extremely well capitalized. And, you know, so we knew we needed some resources that, you know, that the mom and pop got people that were had really gotten us to where we were, you know, because I can't couldn't have done this without them. All those natural and independent stores, you yeah. know, which were the lifeblood of who we were, weren't going to take us necessarily to where we needed to go. That we needed to spend some money, and that was with the bigger chains, you know. Mm-hmm. So we, that was when we realized we probably needed to raise some money. So. I think it was beginning beginning of 2016 and 2015, and we went through one round. The first round we went through, we like got to the finish line, and it was like I'm telling you, it was meant to be three months or 60 days. They told us it could be 90 days, but it stretched out to like 180 days of, of due diligence in the close. Ah. And then, and it was Andrew and I that were doing all the paperwork because it was really you know at that time we didn't have a big team, and they, you know. They had hired an investment bank and they were running us around like crazy. And of course, we missed on revenue, which is to be expected. You know, so guys, be prepared when you're raising. You know, it A tells you maybe our, our, our predictions were a little rosy, but I think that it was probably 50 50. Maybe our predictions were a little rosy. 
and we were kind of took our eyes off the ball of you know, growing the company, right? Because we we're doing all this stuff for these investors. That's right. like the here. They like- come back and they say, "Okay, well, we'd like to change the valuation." Right. Um, you know, right at the last second, knowing that they had pushed us, you know, potentially into a precarious financial position. And it was the hardest thing. In the- I remember this, and I was like, called my parents up, I called my brother up. I'm like, I don't know if I should take this money. You know, and I know this could hurt me, you know, because we've invested so much time. And I remember the conversation to this day. My brother tells me, he's like, don't take the money. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, don't take it. He's, he says it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your vision. It's going to give you a bad taste, you know, and it may change the way you view your company. And sure enough, he was bang on right in that. And I called him back and said, you know what? You can keep your money. I'm, I'm going to go my own way. I think they were shocked. Wow, I'm shocked. Yeah, I didn't, uh, that's the story with ending. It's a long, <laughs> it's a long, uh, it's a lot of investment in terms of time and energy. And you sound like you know, it sounds like you were so far down the path. So yeah, no, it was a, we went all the way down the path to where like literally it was meant to close the next day when they had made, gave us this. Then I, I don't know. I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt that they didn't do that on purpose, but the, the timing was pretty. <laughs> It's pretty impeccable, you know? Yeah. yeah. Actually, we had a similar deal. See, this is so repressed. This just like triggered a memory. <laughs> I'm like, when we, were, when, we were, uh, when we sold our last company, we went just from zero to acquisition. But along the way, we entertained some different deal structures. So we had conversations, minority, majority. And there was a point at which we were ready to do a majority deal with uh, this group who we went, so far down the path with them. I mean, to the point that they were having us take these like crazy, you know, personality kind of like tests and IQ tests or something. I don't even know how yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, I still don't understand what those tests were, but they were intense. And uh, literally in the 11th hour after we had, you know, we had said no to others, whatever. I, I mean, talk about having a panic attack. They pulled out zero explanation. They just like, they had before, like two days before we were supposed to close. It was just yeah. like out of left field. And we were like, what? what just happened? Needless to say, 2020, we are so happy we never went with that, that group or that structure. But um, anyway, yeah, I see you have your, your head in your hand right now. Can I see <laughs> no, this? I'm just, well, yeah, I'm not saying I'm, I'm happy it happened to you, but it's so good to hear that. Because I, I thought it was just like the worst thing that had ever happened to me. Yeah. So, so how, did you, you, um, how did you how did you bounce back, or what was your your strategy after that? I can't remember exactly how I bounced back. I think I think it was my family who doubled down on me at that time and said, you know, and gave me more money. I think my, it was my dad who basically said, "Okay, well, I still believe in you." Um, I don't know whether he dipped into his retirement savings or whatever, but I'll, I won't forget. You know, without my my parents. I probably would have folded at that time, but I mean, they came to the bat for me, and I and I didn't sugarcoat it. I didn't say, "Hey, it's going to be a home run from here." And I didn't, I you know, because I hear stories about entrepreneurs who go and say anything to their investors to get more money. At that point, I was like, I knew that it was, you know, there was a chance that I wasn't going to make it, and I didn't want to take money, you know, under you know under a you know kind of a guise that I thought it was a, it was a sure thing but you know for whatever reason they trusted me and you know it it turned out to be okay <laughs> but 
yeah. at the time it was it was it was a risky investment. So remember. what do you think was what accounted for that shift? Like how did it how did it then kind of turn turn everything around? Yeah, it wasn't like I came up with another product and all of a sudden I was off to the races. You know, I, I think I what I did was I you know, I'd seen and I've seen this a couple of times in my life, but you know, I've I get to the gates where it gets really scary and I'm, and I kind of, I reach deep down and I develop a little more fortitude and I, and I focus a little bit harder. And I think that that's really what I did at that time. I think I said, okay, well now I'm really playing with some money that's, you know, that has some deep reaching consequences for people that it, that it is not just my money, you know? So I was like, I got to make this work and I'll do whatever the fuck it takes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're, you're <laughs> recently acquired. I am just curious, how was your, your partner, business partner, and also what was your wife's reaction? I mean, was there a point at which either one of them said, like, oh, just get a history teaching job at this point? Like, you know, what, like, were you, were you finding them as like a, to be a sor- source of support and encouragement or the opposite? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I leaned on either of them too, too, too much. I mean, Andrew's been a great partner of mine for the whole time, but it wasn't so much of a financial partner. It was more my money at that point, and now it's my, my family's money. My wife, on the other hand, was probably shitting her pants, going, "Oh my god, um, we're really, you know, we're, you know, because we now we've got two kids. It's like eh. work, yeah. But you know what? I guess at the end of the day, you know, I could have gone back. You know, as bad as things could have gotten, I could have gone back and worked in the city again. I, you know, it wasn't like I, I was battling cancer and there was, you know, there was, it was something like I could have been, okay, well, this was a 10 year setback or whatever it is. But if I go and work my ass off, I can bounce back from that. So it wasn't, well, so I, I think she believed in me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not so sure. You know what? You should have her on the podcast. She'd probably tell you like, story. She'd probably tell you that she wanted to take a knife to my throat. Yeah. We should do like the uh, the Dak Shepherd style like fact check at the end to just have her on to tell her. <laughs> she was like, no, I wanted him to like, quit. That's not how it went at all. Um, that's great, though. That's great. Um, okay, so to, so after you kind of find your footing. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm kind of curious. We could we could just bounce around if there's a direction you want to go. But I'm I'm kind of curious. I read a little bit about your company culture and your sort of approach to innovation, and um, you know, sort of having this attitude of play. And I find that you know, I, I have to assume that with a company like this, where your platform is just like better for you snacks, you can kind of go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm curious how you how you fostered that sort of innovation and, and how you approached R&D, but then also how you stayed focused um, because it seems like you could get very easily distracted in terms <laughs> of product line extensions and where you're like, oh, Chia or paste, like puffs or, you know, whatever. I mean, it, it just... Yeah, so I would say that's a really good question. I would say I do get distracted really easily. I think you're bang on there. I would say that in... Saying that, I also admit failure really quickly, and I don't. I think my success in innovating is that I 
will pivot a lot and typically will pivot away from things really quickly when they don't work. So I don't hitch my pony to something that I think is not, doesn't have firepower. So I will try something and like, okay, that doesn't sell well. Let's, let's discontinue that. Or let's just, you know, let's try this. Let's discontinue that. But we never stopped hitching our wagon to popcorn. So as many, you know, as much as I innovated and I will continue to innovate, you know, I, I was doing my, um, I had my employees do a review of, of me, a performance review. And then one, All right. one of the harshest criticisms, which is right, is like, why doesn't he just focus on what works and stop, you know, coming up with so many different products? We've obviously got great products. You know, we should build around the products that we have. You know, we've got so many resources and you know that you need to allocate your resources to, to being a, you know, super efficient with them with products that are successful. And I can't argue with that. I mean, I, I know that's probably a flaw, um, but I think it's also a strength because I think by playing around so much and by being playful, we attract the right kind of energy to our company. And we try different things and we laugh and we talk about failure and um, it breeds a culture of exactly what you say, of playfulness. And I think that what, what retailers really like, and there's a handful of them and not everyone, is that every time we see them every six months, we've got some harebrained idea or scheme and some retailers actually really like that. And they love that we're fostering innovation, that we're willing to try new things and new ingredients that they haven't seen. And, and I think they give us time because of that. Mm-hmm. And that's worked well for us. You know, we don't try to be everything to everyone, you know, but we really, really appreciate the partnerships that with retailers who are willing to try stuff that's outside the box. Yeah. yeah. And what do you like tend to come back to? Like, do you have your parameters in terms of like where you absolutely will not go in terms of, you know, quality or ingredients or, you know, types of ingredients that you will? Well, everything has to be organic unless yeah. it's super expensive not to be organic. I mean, like we, we wanted these egg white girls are a perfect example. You know, we wanted to do certified, certified, humane, non-GMO verified organic egg whites. That was like... I think that those were like $24 a pound. So we had to do, we, we got the certified humane non-GMO verified egg whites, but we, we got them down to like $11 a pound. And in order to, we know that people won't, when you look at managerial accounting, we know that people won't pay more than $4.99 for a snack. That's kind of like the upper bandwidth. So we need to somehow engineer stuff that we can sell to a distributor that has store margin, distributor margin and all that stuff. And, we know we need a certain amount of margin to you know continue to operate, and so we've got a limited bandwidth. So that was an example. But you'd be surprised. We've been able to, for the most part, use ninety five percent organic ingredients. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Where the co- where the copa not having a co-packer really helps us is the enhanced margin of having of producing all our own stuff gives us the ability to use more expensive ingredients. Well, and I think with innovation too, right? I mean, you can obviously tinker around a lot more with your own facility. You have your own space and you're not relying on a co-packer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that we don't have to, you know, big thing for us is we don't have to promote four times a year. I mean, we can get away with promoting two times a year because mm-hmm. people are willing to pay for our items because they're looking for specific ingredients and they care about that kind of stuff. So well, and you also have a proven track record now of having really good products. So I think, you know, you've earned the trust of 
we've earned the trust that is required, I think, in, in this landscape now where people know that, you know, you're, you're making decisions based on having their interests at heart and not just like doing something that's kind of struck The thing is, is if we can't afford it, we just say no. Right. You know, so this is an expensive item. We can't afford to pay slotting on this or we can only spend X amount of slotting. If this item's not for you, I'm sorry that just, we, we just, you know, well, this is what we can sell you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And sometimes when you say no, they say yes, you know? <laughs> Funny how that happens sometimes. You're like, oh, I could just say no. <laughs> See what happens. Um, so when you speaking of how do you feel about market research? Are you getting any customer feedback in terms of, you know, what people want to see next? Or are you just like, you know what, they don't know what they want to see next. It's up to me to show them where to go. We just that's a wow, you're like you're coming up with stuff that we just we just invested money in re, in market research for the first time in eight and a half years as a company. We we and not a ton of money. I think we spent you know a little over twenty grand on it or whatever. But we want to know as we make the switch to conventional grocery from our natural roots, we want to know how to talk to a different set of consumers that we've never really talked to in the past. So that's been super interesting. To that end. And to Zoe's question, I mean, I think we're always curious, like, is it, are you, you know, is someone in this position saying to their audience, like, here's what you want, you might not even know about it yet, but like, just trust us, this is, this is what you want. Or is it much more based on feedback that you're getting saying, um, you know, we want to see uh, a jalapeno flavor, we want to see, you know, less, fewer carbs in this label and, and, and how are your decisions sort of based, um, informed by that? Where we wanted to like, what you, what are the product attributes and, you know, is organic as big as it, you know, as big as it seems, or do people care about that? Is, are the good fats something that people are interested in? Do they care about Himalayan salt? Do they care about how we process things? Do we all, you know, like, Give us a sequential order and how to talk to them. Right, your priorities. Okay, so on that note, though, this is a very interesting moment, I guess, as you transition from natural or start to move more into conventional. Just in terms of how do you scale and how do you speak to the audience and how do you how do you you know deliver uh, something that is more specific to their needs but maintain the integrity. Um, of your original products and like are you going to change anything based on you know middle america's desires and what they prioritize in terms of ingredients or do you say like hey no maybe organic is is not so important to you but it's important to us as a company yeah that's that's the give and take i mean is there a is there like a quick you know a quick thing that doesn't compromise your integrity as a company you know that will make it more acceptable to the masses. So far from the research, we haven't found anything. You know, what did we get out of it? We found out what our net promoter score was. We found out what did we find out? We found out how well how unknown we are in the middle. Great. <laughs> <laughs> we found out that that people don't really care about as you know as much about as organic. Um, obviously, it goes without saying, but. Uh, you know, we won't, you know, we're, we're, we are making a concerted effort to go more plant-based. I mean, we've now down to one skew that uses cheese um, where we used to have a bunch. Now, like 
almost all of our stuff is plant-based. All our cheese products are made you know, with nutritional yeast. Our, our butter popcorn is made with organic botanical extracts. So we're like really trying to get into this. And we're really trying to, not only are we trying to get plant, plant forward, plant-based, but we're trying to really get into sustainability, you know, in terms of spending more on packaging that biodegrades faster and all these different things. And we're spending money on this stuff. And is all this stuff, does it mean, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to learn anything we can, but it seems, unfortunately, you know, and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer on this show, but, you know, a lot of the initiatives that we're taking aren't necessarily resonating or will resonate with, with some of these consumers. Right. Um, well, but so what you said before. So we don't want to roll out in conventional grocery as fast as we, we, we you, know, the, you know, as fast as we want to. Maybe that's the conclusion. Right. But you said before that you can't be everything to everybody. And I, I mean, I think what you're saying kind of illustrates that point, which is like you are definitely doing all of the things right for a very large cohort that you've been kind of reaching over the years. And if now this new frontier is not necessarily responding in the way that you need it to, does that suggest, I mean, it, do, it should, I, I don't know, it seems like you don't want to then kind of change your whole strategy. Just so, so, yeah, exactly right. So it suggests we shouldn't make a large investment in that, right? Or does it suggest that we should anyways, because that's the right thing to do for the world and for the planet and for all those And then eventually they will catch up. <laughs> and then eventually they will catch up. That's why you do this market research. I mean, you look, you're trying to look for some sort of silver lining that pushes you in that direction. But um, so far as of yet, I mean, we're going to see, we've gotten the first batch of results. We went back with, you know, because there were, you know, it didn't target exactly the consumers we were looking for. So we're having them go back and kind of redraw the demographics again. But I'll let you know. But the first, first go around was not all that encouraging. Yeah. Maybe you should have spent that 20 grand just uh, in marketing in the Midwest. <laughs> like, hey, I learned no one's heard of us <laughs> in uh, North Dakota. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's interesting. God, I, I feel like I, we could pick your brain for a very long time. Um, you're just in a very interesting uh, moment. It's exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. Yeah. I think it's coming, though. I think it's coming. I, I, I mean, I look at... You know, that California announcement by Newsom, you know, last week, I think, you know, that, you know, if electric is vehicles are coming and then it's coming that fast, I think that everything's packaged up in the same thing, you know, eventually we'll, we'll care about single use plastics, we'll care about bags of potato chips and where it goes in the landfill and what happens to it. I think I'm really bold up about the future. And I think that over the next 10 years, we're going to see some amazing things. At least I, I, I have to because I've got two kids. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm all in. Well, we all have to, you know, it's like, it doesn't, it costs you the same to try to be optimistic as it does to, you know, just say like, well, what's the, what's the point of any of it? Like it's, you have to put yourself in that mindset. And I think, you know, based on what we know of you and how your journey has brought you where you are and the, the, the culture and the mindset that you instill in your company, it's, it sounds like it's all actually quite aligned. So, oh, thank you. Well, you're okay. So, what what advice do you have for some aspiring entrepreneurs out there? Um, any 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 uh, pearls? Any gems you can share? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would say finding a mentor 
is probably the most important thing that you can do if you want to get into this. Some because there's so many mistakes that can be made right at the right at the beginning. Uh, but if you, if you have someone that you know, and you know what the nice thing about this natural food world is it is people like you. I mean, there's lots of nice people that have been through it that are willing to talk about all these bad experiences. And I think part of the negative thing about being in Danbury, Connecticut is that we don't surround ourselves necessarily by that culture. So we don't have a lot of people to bounce stuff off of necessarily. But I probably would have spent more time asking for help if I had known that there was, that so many mistakes were possible. Um, but I think that if someone was to reach out to me and ask me, you know, about all those mistakes, I, I you know, I, I love talking about it. You know what I mean? Just people need to ask. Yeah. Yeah. It's good advice. Well, any, uh, you know, if you have any openings in a mentor role anytime soon, you just let us know. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you doing the first Friday of every month? <laughs> yeah, no, I, listen, we can definitely talk about it. So I'm sure you guys have been more successful than me. I think I've got more to learn off you than you. <laughs> well, you know, we'll see. It all comes full circle. <laughs> We're foolish enough to try it again. So we'll see. Uh, Anyway, well, you have an amazing product, an amazing company. There's so much more. I, you know, I feel like I have a million more questions for you. But um, maybe we'll do a. We should just sit down and have coffee and popcorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. coffee and popcorn. Danbury. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Charles. This is awesome, and uh, yeah. I hope I was somewhat useful. Oh, so useful! Seriously? Come on. So useful. <laughs> Great conversation. I love it. Incredibly um, inspiring and encouraging and just kind of lovely too. So best of luck to you and we will be in touch. And uh, yeah. Thank All you. right. Thanks. Okay. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.